you have your Bible, turn to now that you have one or don't have one, or your little uh, smartphone, your device. Turn to John 18. John chapter 18. Y'all excited to be? School must be starting this week. I was with, um, went by yesterday, my, two of my granddaughters were getting their hair cut, and I figured that after one of them got her hair cut, it might be a good idea if she had a, something distract her while the other one was getting her hair cut, so I went by and got her and so we were either going to go fishing for 30 minutes or go to the golf. She'd never been to a golf course, and she likes playing Wii Golf. So I said, so we'd go down to the golf course and let her putt on the putting green at the golf course. I said, do you want to go fishing or do you want to go to the golf course? I want to go fishing. And the problem was I had forgot the fishing poles. They were in Arlington and we were in Bartlett. I said, well, there's only one problem. Grandy forgot the fishing poles. She said, well, we'll go down to the water, and when they swim by, we'll grab them with our hand. And I said, Emerson, you might be doing that, but Grandy won't. And as a matter of fact, that's going to be real hard to catch fish that way. I said, why don't we go to a golf course and you can hit golf balls? It's really what I wanted to do. Like, you, do, you know how good you are on the Wii Golf? And do you want to do that? I said, okay, we'll do that. So it's 1 o'clock. It's a little warm. And we're, we go to Quail Ridge Golf Course, and we're on the putting green. There's nobody there but me and her and one other guy. No, and so we're just out there and she's putting and for a little six-year-old she's doing pretty good and, and so I'm talking to her and I'm encouraging, encouraging her and I hear there's only one guy on the whole putting green and I hear this voice Randy is that you and it sure enough it was a guy from the Bartlett campus who's known me forever so he comes over and I introduce him to Emerson and we start talking and his three buddies that are going to play with him show up so he's introducing me to them and and uh, we're talking and one, one of the guys says to Emerson she takes said three golf balls she puts all three of them in the hole he said he said what's her name I said Emerson Emerson of course these are all total strangers to her he said Emerson you know when you hit three balls in the hole you have to give everybody a dollar and without hesitation she looks up at him and says I don't have any dollars and he said I bet grandpa does and she said, Grandy, you know, my mommy was crying today. Well, why was mommy crying? And I didn't say anything for a few minutes. And mommy was crying today. Well, why was mommy crying? Because I am so adorable. And I said, I can see that, and I understand that. Because you do have my DNA. All right. Turn to John chapter 18. We're going to begin a series today that is really, really um, a passion of mine. But uh, even more so, I guess, as I uh, listen to people and, and in the midst of, of all kinds of stuff, you hear people talking about Christianity and the arrogance of claiming truth. And so we're going to begin this series today entitled, you'll notice there on your handout, What is Truth? And we're going to look at the story today where Pilate utters these now famous words. What is truth? When Pontius Pilate had Jesus standing there before him, he who is the embodiment of all truth, who is truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he's standing before Pilate, and, the, and, and their encounter ends with Pilate uttering those now famous words. What is truth? And I really think it's important for us as believers to understand that this is a question that we not only have to answer, we've got to decide, do I really believe what I say I believe? Do I really believe that the Bible is true? Do I really believe that Jesus is the truth, therefore he is the way and he is the life because he is the truth? Do I believe what, when Paul said there's one mediator and one, one, uh, there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, when he said one, which implies, not only implies, but states in Greek, exclusivity. When he said there's only one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, did he mean that? And if he didn't mean that, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he wrote it, not only did he believe it, do we believe it? Because as Christians, by definition, who do we follow? I'm going to let you answer this. Who do we follow? You're not, pretty, you're not very excited about it. Who do we follow? 
Jesus Christ. A disciple is a learner follower of Jesus Christ. We were talking last week about maturity, growing in your faith, understanding that, that stagnation is not good enough. As a matter of fact, it's wrong in the eyes of God because if you, if you get in stagnant water and you stop paddling, what happens to you? You back up or you just sit there and you're not going anywhere. And that's not good enough for God. God saved you and left you here to be a disciple, a learner, follower, as long as you're left on the planet. It's to learn more about Jesus Christ and you can become a, <clears throat> more, a, a better follower and a better witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice there on your handout, Deuteronomy 32, it's going to be kind of our theme for this series. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. Now, we say that we believe the Bible as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, as the disciples of the man from Galilee who came, who died in our place, the final, we just saw in Hebrews, the final, the ultimate sacrifice for sin because he was worthy. His sacrifice was perfect and it satisfied God's demand for somebody to pay the sin debt. So we as Christians, by faith, we trust Jesus Christ to save us, forgive us of our sins, and give us, declare us righteous in him that we might have eternal life. Look closely again at Deuteronomy 32. The name of our God, he is great, he is the rock. All he does is perfect. He does not make mistakes. All his ways, very important phrase, all his ways are justice, not in fairness, not unfair in fairness. I made up a new word. You can write that down. New word. He's never unfair. He's never wrong. All his ways are justice. He's a God of truth. Keep your handle on that. A God of truth and without injustice. He repeats the same thing. It's called parallelism in Hebrew. Righteous and upright is he. God is always fair, God is always just, God is always perfect, God is always holy. We follow him because we believe he is the truth. Now one of the things within the church of Jesus Christ in America that is keeping us from being effective for the kingdom, and I mean by the church throughout our nation, is the belief that God is whoever you want him to be. When we talk about this, we say, no, no, but yet, see it all the time. I hear preachers talking about it. You, you, uh, it's constantly being debated. I mean, anytime you're in a presidential election, it's always going to come up. What's the religious background of this particular person? This is, in this particular presidential election, we have one man who is a Mormon. We have another man who claims to be a Christian. And so you start to, that's going to be examined. It's going to be, and whoever uh, Romney picks for his running mate, that guy's life and, and his religious background are going to be just scrutinized along with everything else in his life. So it's important for us to understand when we say Jesus Christ is the way, he means I'm the only way. And we've got to decide. He's either a liar, Jesus Christ is either a liar, or he is the Lord God Jehovah, the second person of the Trinity, who came in flesh. He is and always has been eternally the Son of God. He was born the Son of Man to be the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, saying that Jesus, Messiah. He is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. If we don't believe that, if we're just giving that lip service, that's where you get, well, okay, yes, we believe that Jesus is that, but it's okay if you want to believe something different. That'll get you to heaven as well. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. That's what's killing church. We respect everyone's right to believe whatever they want to, but it doesn't make it true. For example, I may firmly believe that I'm a car. Does that make it true? What if I think it's true? 
I'll give you a very poignant example, and I don't mean this uh, in any way except it's just truth. When my sweet mom, she died in December of 1999, and the last six months of her life, she was in a nursing home, and, and my mom had always struggled with mental illness for her whole life. But the last six months of her life, when I would go visit my mom, sometimes she would be in 1999, and sometimes she'd be in 1930, and she firmly believed in 1932. Mary and I, this week, were visiting her sweet mom in a nursing rehab. She's 90, and she asked Mary, where's my mom? I started to say something, Mary looked at me, and normally I just slap Mary and say something, but okay, that's how I got this bruise here, but so I didn't say anything, and Mary in her, her sweetness and her tenderness said, Mom, how old are you? And I think she answered correctly, right? And Mary said, well, how old would your mom be if you're 94? And Miss Hines thought for a minute and said, are you telling me my mom is dead? And Mary said, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, that's what I was going to say. Probably not as tenderly as Mary did it, but... And then a few minutes later, and Miss Hines firmly believed as we're sitting there, what? That she wanted to talk to her mom, right? And, and, and had been trying to call her, right, Mary? Had been trying to call her mom and wanted to go see her mom. Her mom has been with Jesus since 1907, something like right before I met Mary, her, mom, her grandmother passed away. Now, Miss Hines firmly believed that, but was it true? Was her mom alive? Could she talk to her mother? No. And back to my, and with, with my mom, she firmly believed that she, that's where she was. She was going to get on the school bus, and, and she was in 1932. And I, no matter how hard I tried to explain it to her, she would, for that moment, she believed that's where she was. But it's not true. Now, what we believe as Christians versus what, for example, Muslims believe, it's not the same God. Even if you don't believe the Bible, set that aside for a moment. What they believe, what they teach, is mutually exclusive from what we as Christians believe. You don't kill somebody as a Christian who disagrees with you. You love them, you pray for them, you share your faith. You don't, you don't force your faith on them. You understand the difference? So it can't be the same God, right? Now, they can bo we can both be wrong. Logic here for a moment, 1101. Took it in college, 19... We can both be wrong, correct? But we cannot both be right. We can both be wrong, or one can be wrong, and the other can be right. We can't both be correct. And you know what? That's just the way it is, whether you believe the Bible or not. So our task as Christians, and what we're examining here, is we've got to decide, do we really believe this, and what is it that we believe when we say Jesus is the truth? What is truth? A couple of quick stats. 75%, this is a recent survey by the Barna Institute, you probably may have heard of, 75% of Americans who, are, who label themselves born again. If they label themselves born again, what does that mean they are claiming to be? Christians, I am born again. You hear people say, I'm a born again Christian. Well, that's redundant. If you're a Christian, you're born again. If you're born again, you're a Christian. I heard it one guy say, I'm a Christian, but I'm not born again. Guess what, dude? No, you ain't. That's what I would, I mean, you're a Christian, you're born again. Jesus said, you must be born again to Nicodemus. All right, so these people are claiming to be, I heard another guy say, well, I'm an evangelical born again Christian. He figured out, he'd throw every cliche out. So if you're born again, 75% of people who were born again said, quote, they do not believe in absolute truth. Well, wait a minute, what do you, you said you're born again. Who are you believing in then? Just relative. For me, it's okay. Jesus claimed exclusivity, did he not? He said, I'm the only way a man can know God. What did he mean by that? He meant I'm the only way a man can know God. I'm dull, but I got that one. I'm the only way a man can see God. Why could he say that? He is God. Randy could say that. I'm the only way you'll ever get to know God. And you would say what? Uh, let's have Randy checked out. There's something wrong there because he ain't God. I love that bumper sticker. There's two things true in life. There is a God and you ain't it. 
Jesus claimed to be the only way. His followers, what changed Peter from a coward to being willing to die for his faith? Jesus rose from the dead. That's what changed him. What changed them all? Jesus rose from the dead. What changed you? Jesus Christ saved you. You can call me a liar. You can call me an idiot. You can call me whatever you want. But I know for a fact Jesus Christ changed this life. I know that. We'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks. So 75% of people who claim, quote, to be born again do not believe in absolute truth. 60% of that same group, people who call themselves born again, say that, quote, Christians, Jews, Muslims, and Buddhists pray the same God. They don't even know what those gods are then because they're not the same. They're different. Abraham Lincoln once had a meeting with some men, and he was getting frustrated with them. Abraham Lincoln, in my opinion, is the greatest leader the nation has ever known, greatest president for sure. And Abraham Lincoln was having a meeting with these people, and they were presenting him some facts, and they were saying these are true, and he was saying, well, how do you know they're true? And they, they, they said, well, this is our opinion. And Abraham Lincoln, in his frustration, said, listen, if I set a dog here in our midst that has how many legs? There were four, Mr. President. And if I declare that the, the tail is now a leg, how many legs does that dog have? Five, Mr. President. He said, no, it only has four legs. It's a tail. I may call it a leg, but it's still a tail. I need to know facts. What's the truth? No matter what you might, you don't get to decide for yourself what is absolute truth. Truth is truth. You can decide I don't want to believe it and make a moral decision. You have that right. God gave you that choice, that intellect, that moral compass and that capacity to say yes or no. That's how Satan enticed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, has God said. But it doesn't change the fact that what he says is truth. You got to make a decision. For example, I want everybody to stand up a second. Stand up. Now, not all of you, but those of you that are young enough and capable enough, pick your chair up. Just pick it up. Now, you don't have to if you're not capable, but just pick your chair up. And Dave broke his chair. All right. If your chair's not broken, pick it up. Now, I want you to drop your chair. Just drop it. Now, how many of those chairs are still in the air? The answer is zero. Why? Because there's a law of the universe called what? Gravity. And if you drop something because of gravity, what happens? Now, I don't believe in gravity. I think it's a farce. Well, Randy, you idiot. We just dropped our chairs. What, what caused them to fall? You may sit down now. You don't have to. I'm sorry. Gravity made the chair fall. So gravity exists. Can you see it? Does it exist? Didn't you just prove to yourself that it's true? So whether I like it or not, is it true? Now whether you like it or not, Jesus Christ is God. How do I know? He proved it by walking out of that tomb. He proved it by never sinning. He proved it by all that he did. His works, his word, his life. Proved himself to be God. So we got to decide as Christians, not just do I choose that. But if my neighbors don't choose that, my family does not choose to follow Jesus Christ. My co-workers, total strangers, everybody I run into and I might know, if they choose not to follow Jesus Christ, they go to hell when they die. Why? Because that's truth. And the most loving thing you can ever share with anyone you know or have an opportunity to talk to is that there is a place called hell. Satan doesn't care how religious you are, how much you want to do in this life, as long as you don't trust Jesus Christ to save you. Be as religious as you want, but don't place your faith in Christ. He's just a way, not the way. Norman Geisler, tremendous man of God and great apologist for the faith, has written a book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And in his book, he talks about a story where he is debating a humanist named Michael Colenda. And Michael Colenda had written a book about how, how Christians were... Uh, dogma, being dogmatic, they were arrogant and, and believed they were the only ones who had the truth. He had actually read Norman Geisler's book. 
called Christian Apologetics. I have a tremendous book. But Michael Kalinda, the atheist that he's debating, had read the book. So they're getting ready to have the debate, and Kalinda stands up, and he holds up Geisler's book. And he says, these Christians, quote, are very narrow-minded people. I read Dr. Geisler's book. Do you know what he believes? He believes that Christianity is true, and everything opposed to it is false. These Christians are very narrow-minded people, end quote. Well, Michael Kalinda had written a book. Norman Geisler had read his book. So Geisler stands up, and he says, he holds up Kalinda's book. These secular humanists are very narrow-minded people. I read Dr. Kalinda's book. Do you know what he believes? He believes that humanism is true and everything opposed to it is false. These humanists are very narrow-minded people. And the point is, truth claims by definition are narrow. For Jesus to stand up and say, I'm the only way, what did he mean? I'm the only way. That's pretty narrow-minded. What did he say? He actually said before he died during his earthly ministry that the way to eternal life is narrow. And how many are on that way? Few are found therein. But the way to destruction is broad. Broadway. And many are found therein. You see, the vast majority of our society wants to serve themselves or whatever they choose God. To. And Jesus said, if you don't choose me, you will ultimately discover destruction because broad way leads destruction, narrow way lead life. In Daniel chapter 2, tremendous words written 800 years prior to Jesus, 600 years. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. Prophecy about Nebuchadnezzar's statue, and we're talking about Babylon at the time, and then Medo-Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome. All these great kingdoms of the world would come and go, and the Daniel the prophet is saying, but one day there'll be one kingdom, and that kingdom will destroy all the other kingdoms. It won't be left to another man. What happened to the Roman Empire? It was destroyed. What happened to the Greek Roman Empire? Is it still around? Some other man took it. Some other men took Rome. They never thought the Roman Empire would fall. It fell. Kingdom after kingdom after kingdom, nation after nation after nation will exist. And the people that lead those nations think we are the strongest in the world. Babylon was an incredible kingdom. Egypt, they fell, fell, they fell. What Daniel says is there's a kingdom of the Most High God, and it will destroy all the others. And there will be no other kingdoms except that one still standing. It's all said and done. Now look at John chapter 18. Truth is about the kingdom of God. You see, when you die as a believer in Jesus Christ, you go to heaven. You go to paradise. You go home. And the Bible says we as Christians are a kingdom of priests unto our God. And we will rule with Jesus Christ because we are his bride. There's a lot of metaphors that are used. So we have to understand the first thing we're going to look at today is that truth is about the kingdom of God. We're obviously not going to finish today because that's me, but we will. What you see in John chapter 18 is where Jesus is, has been betrayed by Judas. And he's about to go through, it's in the process of going through six trials in a, in a six-hour period of time. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Six trials over a period of six hours from about 2 a.m. To, to 8 a.m. So it's during the night leading up to dawn. And he's going through these trials. Three of them are religious before the Jews, the Sanhedrin, and three of them are before Romans. So three religious trials, three civil trials in a period of six hours. Look at John 18, verse 28. 
They led Jesus from Caiaphas, a Jew, to the Praetorium, and it was early morning. Praetorium is the Roman governor's residence. They themselves did not go into the Praetorium lest they should be defiled. It's really hypocritical. It's just almost comical, these Jewish leaders. They wouldn't go into the Praetorium where the Romans were because they didn't want to be defiled, but they're asking the Romans to kill Jesus for them. Would you do us a favor? We can't get near you because you're pigs, but would you do us a favor? That's literally what's going on here. Lest they should be defiled, they wouldn't go in, but that they might eat the Passover. More about that in a moment. Pilate then went out to them and said, Pilate is the Roman, not Jewish, Roman governor of Palestine, which, by the way, came, comes from the word Philistine. And by, the job in Palestine was considered a dead-end, backwater province job. So Pilate, even though he was the governor, this was like being the governor of Mississippi or something. All right, I'm just kidding. All right. Just joking, lest they should be defiled, that they might eat the Passover. Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? In other words, the Jews bring him to Pilate, the Roman governor. He said, All right, what do you accuse him of? And notice, they answered and said to him, verse 30, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. See what they're saying to Pilate? Hey, dude, we wouldn't be here if, it wasn't, if he wasn't a criminal. You don't have to ask us what the accusation is. We brought him, didn't we? What Pilate should have done at this point was kill all of them. And he had the power to do that, but he did not. Verse 31, Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. They're lying there also. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke signifying by what death he would die. I just want to set the context for you. These six trials were supposed to be about fairness and about justice. Just a quick, couple of quick examples how neither one was being considered. The Jewish court, the Sanhedrin, the ones who bring him to Pilate, they had one mission. It was always to look for mercy and to save life. They were to always presume innocence with tremendous latitude. And yet the exact opposite is done here in the case of Jesus Christ. They had strict laws to look for the innocent and set people free, to be as fair as they possibly could be. By law, they were never to try anyone at night. 2 a.m. falls where? Last time I checked, that was during the night. Strict laws, try no one at night, yet they did with Jesus. They charge Jesus with blasphemy, yet when they bring him to Pilate, they change it treason against Caesar, which they were not allowed, again, by law, violating their own law. They changed the law by taking him to Rome, changed the charge against him from blasphemy because Pilate didn't care about blasphemy. What did Pilate think of their God? He wanted nothing to do with it. He didn't even believe in their God. The Jews were just somebody they, they ruled over. The only reason Pilate's listening to them is that it's Passover and he's worried that they might rebel and he's trying to quell a rebellion. And they're saying, Jesus is going to rebel against Caesar. Well, I better hear this. He didn't believe. They, the Romans were polytheistic. Caesar was a god. They didn't believe in the god of the Jews. So blasphemy wouldn't be a charge Pilate would even listen to. He says, you take him and try him. So they changed the charges to insurrection and treason. Treason always got the Romans' attention because they wanted to keep the hammer down people so nobody would rebel against them. Jesus was not allowed to have a defense attorney of any kind, also violating the law. They had no credible witnesses against Jesus. And from the, if you go all the way back to the Old Testament, they always had to have two credible witnesses even to bring a charge. They had, none, they had to pay people to come up and lie about Jesus. They could not find any credible witnesses against him, yet they tried him anyway. A man could not be executed on the same day as his trial or his sentence was passed. They did in the case of Jesus Christ. They were supposed to wait two days in any case where death was being asked for. They did it the same day. Over and over, they violate their own laws, their own procedural methods, because they simply had one thing in mind. We got to get rid of this guy. If we can't kill him for this, we got to get Rome to kill him for us. So it looks like we did good. And in the case of the Roman court, what did Pilate say about Jesus? Without us even reading it, you know. What did Pilate say about Jesus? I find what? No fault in this man. 
Four times, at least, he calls him king of the Jews and says, I find no fault in him. And he was saying, why do you want to kill this guy? I can't even, he even tries to give him a way out. Remember the Barabbas story? At, at, at the feast of Passover, you have a tradition where you release one, and he brings out Barabbas, the worst one he could find, the worst criminal he had, and said, oh, you want me to release Barabbas or the king of the Jews? And who did they choose? It's Barabbas. Pilate had to be thinking, remember the story of trying to wash his hands? And his own wife had said to him, what? Don't mess with, you don't want to fool this Jesus thing. Stay away from that. I'm Pilate. I'm the governor. And he knew that I washed my hands of the blood of the, I can't find any reason. Here's the hypocrisy. I find no fault in this man, but what did he do? Scourge him and crucify him. Beat him within an inch of his life and then torture him to death for one reason. Why did Pilate do it? Politic. Politic. To keep the Jews from, I can kill this guy. If I, so he did. All right, quickly. Look at verse 33. First thing we have to understand as Christians about truth, about the kingdom of God, is you've got to acknowledge that Jesus is king. You have to acknowledge that Jesus is king. Verse 33. Pilate entered the praetorium again. Again, this is the governor in Jerusalem. This is the the fortress of Antonio. On Temple Mount in Jerusalem, the governor of Rome had a residence. That's what this is. Pilate, verse 30, excuse me, verse 33. Pilate entered the praetorium again. He called Jesus and he said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, are you speaking for yourself about this or or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. First thing you got to understand is that Jesus acknowledged him as a king. Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews? Again, as a Roman governor, he was simply worried that the Jews might be in rebellion. If this guy was going to lead a rebellion, then he would handle it. So he says, are you the king of the Jews? Also being Passover, the greatest celebration the Jews had every year, Passover, there would have been just thousands upon thousands of Jews at Jerusalem and they always had messianic fever. And the, and the Romans were worried that some other, because they had false messiahs jumping up all the time. And he's worried, is this some other guy that's going to jump up and say, I'm the messiah, because Jesus had said, I am the king of the Jews, messiah, and is he going to rebel against Rome? So he's asking a legitimate question as the governor of Rome. I love Jesus' response. Look at verse 34 again. Are you speaking for yourself, or did others tell you this concerning me? I love Jesus Christ for a lot of reasons, but I love the way he handled questions. Almost always see him turn it around, question, examine himself. What does Jesus ask Pilate? Are you really interested in this? You just being a lackey of Sanhedrin. Listen, if you're the Roman governor, did you want to be a lackey for anybody? So what Jesus is asking him, are you really interested in knowing Pilate? Are you really worried about me? Or are you just here doing the bidding of Jews? Is that what it is? Because inherent in his question is this, Pilate, have you, do you have any reason, any evidence that I would lead a rebellion against Rome? I don't have an army. I don't have any weapons. I don't have any authority. I don't have any power, earthly. I'm not leading a rebellion. As a matter of fact, I teach the opposite. What had Jesus taught his followers about Rome? Remember the coin deal? Jesus said, do you have a coin? He said, whose image is on the coin? What was the answer? Caesar. And what did Jesus say? Render under Caesar. What is Caesar? And the message of that powerful context was the coins that you have, the image on it is Caesar. You owe Caesar the tax. Pay them. But as a human being, my image is on you because I created you and render unto me is mine. You. Give Caesar his money. Give me life. That's what he's about to tell Pilate. You have no evidence whatsoever to assume that I would lead a rebellion. So why are you asking the question? In fact, the very opposite truth. Literally what Jesus was doing He's on trial, but in reality, what is Jesus putting Pilate on? And you know what? 
please, if you miss everything else I say, get not just today, but for this. Because the end of this encounter, Pilate's going to say, what is truth? And that's trial putting it. Am I the truth? And it's the trial he puts every being that ever lived. It's me, you, or anybody else. What's truth? Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who lives and believes in me, though he die, yet he will live. Do you believe? Am I the truth? I'm not another religious option. I am the only way. Do you believe this? Do you believe the truth? He's putting Pilate on trial. He puts you and me on trial and everybody else. Because we'll talk more about this in the weeks to come because he's proven himself in other ways. The truth. One of them is you have a conscience. Where'd that come from? Evolution gives you a conscience. You have a conscience. You know why you have a conscience? Because God created you in his image. In his image. So Paul writes in Romans, yourself back. A living sacrifice. Reasonable response. What God has done for you. Are you really interested, Pilate? So Pilate's response in verse 35 is, am I a Jew? In other words, I don't care about your petty religious quarrels. I'm Rome. In that context, I am Rome. I'm the governor. I'm not interested in what's going on with you. You can have all the gods you want. Please don't miss this. This is exactly what's going on politically. You can have all the gods you want because Rome had plenty of them. But we can't have anybody claiming to be an earthly king because you might be rebelling against Rome. We are kings. Even today, applying that principle, the attitude that's killing the church in America is just have faith something. You can have all the gods you want, but don't claim that Jesus is the only king. I didn't claim it. Jesus. And not only did he claim it, proved it. So true. Again, I can think I'm a car. Doesn't make me a car. I can believe that that light... I can, be, I can believe like a pantheist that that light, this podium, this stage, that chair, the floor, that it's all God. That's fine. doesn't make it true. What did prove self true. The first step is you've got to acknowledge him as king. Look at verse 36, the very beginning. Jesus answered, verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom, my kingdom. What do you mean when he said my kingdom? That's what did Pilate ask him at the end of verse 35. Am I a Jew? What have you done? Jesus answers, my kingdom is not of this world. Just the two little words, my kingdom, Jesus is acknowledging what? I am a king. By acknowledging that he was a king, what did he know Rome was going to do to him? Kill him. They couldn't have anybody else claiming to be a king. And we'll look, start, we're going to look at next week what he meant by the rest of that. But the point is, you have to acknowledge that Jesus is king. I want you to look on your outline at these verses and then we're through. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let it be so. Paul writes to Timothy. He writes to Timothy again. Same epistle. God, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate. I love that word. The King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Let it be so. As we get ready to pray today, here's what I want you to focus on. We're going to stop there today and pick it up next to part two. We as Christians, by definition, when I say I am a Christian, the term means a little Christ, a follower of Jesus Christ. By making that statement, I'm saying that I acknowledge Jesus is king. If I'm sincere, if I'm born again, if I am a Christian, I'm acknowledging that Jesus is exactly who he said he was, God in the flesh, King of kings and Lord of lords. So here's my challenge to you. I want you to bow your heads just for a moment. I'm going to pray in a moment. I want you to bow your head for a moment, just you and God. If you say that you're a Christian, that at some point in your life you've been saved, you've asked Christ to forgive you and save you, do you honestly believe, I don't want you to raise your hand, it's between you and God, do you honestly believe that Jesus Christ is the truth, that Greek definite article, the only truth? 
Do you honestly believe he's the only way a man can know God? That's what he said. Do you acknowledge him as king? Father, as we think about this, as we pray, I simply pray in my life and in the life of every person seated here who says he's a Christian or she's a Christian, that we would honestly say, do I believe that Jesus is the only way? Not, not my way, but the only way. Because if I don't believe it's the truth, then what is it I'm believing? He said, I am the truth. What did he mean? So I pray, Father, we would be honest and real with you, that if we're not saved, we would say, Lord, individually, I, I, I want you to say, I believe Jesus is the way. I believe he is truth. I believe he is the life. Jesus, forgive me. Save me. I want to be born again. I want to trust you and follow you. And for all of us, Father, that we would acknowledge, if we acknowledge Jesus as the king, we would serve him as the king, not accepting other ways, but lovingly, gently, respectfully, disagreeing and sharing Jesus Christ. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name.